Life Christian Church, and I just want to extend to all of you here today, all you moms, a very special happy Mother's Day. And I know it's not Mother's Day. Give our moms a hand. Yeah, Mother's Day weekend. And uh, I hope you are enjoying the, the chocolate fountains out there and, and the, the llamas. If you haven't got a chance to take your picture, some of you are like, llamas? That means you got here before the llamas showed up, so you're early arrivers. But anyway, out in the, out the area, there's a photo booth, and, and we'd love for you to take some pictures. We've got signs you can hold, and we'd love for you to tag the church. Hey, speaking of Mother's Day, I thought maybe I'd throw out you a little Mother's Day trivia and see how smart you guys are with Mother's Day. How, how many of you know, or who was the President of the United States when Mother's Day became a national holiday? Do you know? Not Harry Truman, but good guess. You're not supposed to know. This is not information you typically gather. Okay, it was on this weekend in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson declared that, did somebody get that? You just didn't shout it out. I didn't hear you. If you didn't, I didn't hear you. But Woodrow Wilson issues a presidential um, proclamation that officially establishes the first Mother's Day holiday to celebrate America's mothers. But did you also know this? Because I didn't know this till just recently, that according to an article that I read in the National, uh, I almost said National Enquirer, not that. <laughs> the National Geographic. I don't know why Enquirer came out. The National Geographic, they released an article back in uh, May of 2017. And you may not have known this, but this is what this article said, that Mother's Day actually started as an anti-war movement. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But according to this article, it was. Mother's Day, the roots of it can be traced back to an anti-war movement. According to the article, Julie Ward Howe, better known for writing the, the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, she promoted a Mother's Day agenda back in 1872, and for her and, and other anti-war activists, Mother's Day was their way of promoting this global unity and peace after the horrors of the Civil War. It was one of those things to kind of bring awareness to that. And uh, she, she called for, for women everywhere across our land to, to visit churches and parlors and social halls, to listen to sermons and to share essays and to sing hymns and to pray if they wish to, all in the name of promoting peace. Now, several American cities back then, they jumped on this bandwagon. They also um, um, celebrated the same idea, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. They all held these Mother's Day gatherings, and they did this all the way up until 1913, and that's right about the time when Woodrow Wilson announced that this is going to be a, a national holiday, and it became very commercialized, and all these women who were the, you know, we didn't want anything to do with that. We wanted to be a peace movement. They kind of faded away, and it became Mother's Day that it is now. Now, I didn't know any of that, and honestly, outside of this article, I don't even know if it's true, but uh, I'm just going to take National Geographic's word that it is true, and I think, as I was thinking about that, I think that most moms would still love for Mother's Day to be an anti-war movement. Now, here's what I mean by that. At least on one day out of the year... No fighting in our home. And I think that's, uh, that's what I mean by one day of the year, I want a peaceful environment. One day out of the year, no arguing. This is an arguing-free zone. One day out of the year, it doesn't look like a battlefield inside of our living room. Just one day. So one day, no, nothing like that. I, you know, so it's one day out of the year, maybe we could, could clean up the house for our moms without being asked. You know, make sure it looks good. This is the one day that 
Mom doesn't have to lead anything. Doesn't have to lead in what's for dinner. Doesn't have to lead in anything. And this is the day where moms can get a foot massage from their husbands and kids, no questions asked. Bubble baths are the norm. So this is mom's Calgon take me away day. No questions asked. Absolutely peaceful because every mom knows the good fight resumes again on Monday. And so happy Mother's Day to all you moms and all you moms that still want this to be an anti-war holiday. We want peace in our homes and I pray and hope that it is exactly that in your home. Hey, you got your Bibles? Go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 2 because that's where we're going to be continuing in our study in the book of Acts this evening. And as you're finding Acts 2, let me just catch you up real quickly. We have learned already in the book of Acts that Jesus has ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit has descended on the disciples. He has entered them. He is being with them. And there was this great movement, this great day that happened on the day of Pentecost where these disciples filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out and they began to preach in the streets of Jerusalem. And the miracle of that day was this. The disciples were speaking in their own language, but people who spoke different languages heard this message of Jesus Christ being preached. And we learned that on that day, 3,000 people believed this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we learned that 3,000 people repented and were baptized. And this movement of Christians, the church, was started. If you look at the the last part of Acts chapter 2, starting around verse 42, we learn this about those early days of the church. They They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds wonderful. Right here in these few verses, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but it's an important part of the church's story that these very first Christians, is this the first week, first couple weeks, first couple months? We don't know the time frame here, but when it just got started, that these early Christians, we know they started with 1,000, 3,000, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean exactly? That means the things that the Holy Spirit was reminding the apostles of what Jesus said and taught to them and teaching them new truth. There was no New Testament. It's not like the apostles could say, hey, open to the book of 1 Corinthians. No, 1 Corinthians hasn't happened yet. What they had was the apostles' teaching. They were teaching the people, and all the teaching came from these 12 men. And they were devoted to this wonderful fellowship. The Greek word for that is koinonia, and it's more than coffee and donuts. It's more than, hey, how you doing, and a friendly handshake on a Sunday morning. It's so much more than that. They were involved in each other's lives. They did life together. That's how we would describe it to this day. They, they sacrificed for one another. They gave sacrificially to one another. They had everything in common. There's this wonderful community, this fellowship. They were devoted to it. They were devoted to remembering Christ's death. They, they met daily, oftentimes, and they would share a meal together. And at some point during that meal, when they would eat bread and wine, they would stop and they would, they would kind of remember what Jesus had done. 
and, and, and Jesus did this with the disciples. It was so fresh on their minds still. They would eat bread, remember Christ's body. They would drink the wine, remember his blood that was shed. This is something they did on a regular basis. And this group was devoted to prayer. So simply put, these first Christians were devoted, these earliest days, they were devoted to God's word or the apostles' teaching, devoted to each other, they were devoted to Christ's sacrifice and remembering it always, and they were devoted in talking with God. This was the simple formula for the early church. And churches today, including our very own right here at New Life, can often find themselves involved in many things. We can be a very busy church at times. And I would say all of those things are good, and everybody has great intentions. But at the end of the day, these four devotions that we read here at the book of Acts, they are devoted to God's Word, to community, to communion, and prayer. Those four things, together with this incredible desire to reach more and more people with, with, for Jesus, that, my friends, is the glue that keeps all of this together. That's the foundation. And our hope is the same thing we read about in verse 47, that the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. So this group of Christians, there was something so contagious about what they were doing, something about their message, something that was so on fire in this group that every single day more and more people were joining the ranks. They were believing in Jesus Christ. They were repenting of their sins and being baptized. Exciting days for sure. For this brand new group of Christians. But as we move into chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, these Christians are going to encounter their first round of heavy resistance to this message of Jesus Christ. So you got your Bibles? I want you to look at chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We are not going to read all of it, so I'm going to trust you're going to read this on your own. But let's start it out. What does it say? One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At 3 in the afternoon... Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he, had put, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him to the into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Then all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's a pretty amazing miracle. Pretty amazing miracle. In fact, there's some words here that are also added to what, what I would say were words used on the day of Pentecost. The, they, the words here were they were in wonder and amazement at what they were seeing. The same kind of words were used in the previous chapter with the speaking of tongues. They were perplexed. They were amazed. They were bewildered. These are the kind of responses people were having to these signs and wonders that the disciples were, were doing here in these early days of the church. Now, now, this is right here the first specific recorded miracle by the disciples after Pentecost. 
we know that the Holy Spirit gave these disciples a special gifting to do these kinds of things, very similar to what Jesus did when he worked on the earth. This is part of that, that, that people were signs and wonders, and they were amazed by these things. But this healing of the crippled man, it is the first one that we read about in the book of Acts. Probably not the first thing that happened, but it's the first one that's recorded. And the question that I have is, why on this particular day did Peter and John stop to talk to this guy that was sitting at the temple courts begging for money? I don't know why that is. I mean, it's possible they've walked by this same man many times. Because even after the church started, the disciples, these early Christians, they're still Jewish people. It is still their normal custom to go to the temple to pray. Peter and John, it's highly probable, walked by this guy many times before on their way to pray. But on this particular day, for some reason, this happened. Peter looked right at him and he said, I don't have any money. You're, you're asking the wrong guy if you want money. Judas took it all. No, I don't know if he said that or not. I'm, I don't know. But he said, I don't have any money. But I got something so much better than money. And I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, this is what I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. I read one time, and I believe with all my heart, that there are no wasted miracles in the Bible. There is no just because miracles in the Bible. Every miracle that we read about, every miracle that happened both with Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament with the apostles, it had a very specific purpose. And if we were to read in this miracle and to think that God's purpose for this miracle was that so this guy who had been crippled from birth could stand up and walk, if we thought that was the purpose, then we would be greatly mistaken now, miracles in the Bible were always a means to an end. Why this miracle? Why the healing on this day? Here's why. Because this miracle gave this man not just the ability to walk, but it gave Peter and John a pulpit, and it gave them an audience, and it gave them a reason to be heard. Friends, you're going to see all through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see it back in Jesus, that these miracles are what cause people to want to listen. And that's exactly what is happening. It was the speaking in tongues that caused people to listen. It is this miracle that caused people to say, what is going on here? Look at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. This is an area where the early Christians used to meet. It's near the temple court area. And you can probably, if you looked on the back of your Bible, if you have maps, you might even have a map of Jerusalem and the temple and Solomon's Colonnade. It's this covered area where the, the early church used to meet. So this is where they are at. It's a large area. And he came with them. He was holding on to them. Now remember, there is no New Testament yet, like I was saying. There's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and so forth. It's not like, hey, turn to the book of, you know, 3 John chapter 1. There's none of that. What they have is the apostles' testimony, these eyewitnesses' account of the resurrection of Jesus and, and this teaching that they got from Jesus Christ, accompanied by miracles. So they've got the truth accompanied with miracles, and people listen to this. So they're going up to the temple to pray, but God had so many other plans for them on this day. He gave them an audience, and friends, this is starting to shape up like another 
Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, we're not going to read verses 11 through 26. I'm going to trust that you're going to do that on your own. But just like on the day of Pentecost, Peter and John began to preach to these people who started to listen. And, and this group has grown now into several thousand by this point. They preached about Jesus, how Jesus' blood was on their hands, that they had sinned, but because Jesus had risen from the grave, they have an opportunity to repent. And if they would repent, Jesus would wipe their sins away. That was the message of verses 11 through 26. Very similar to Pentecost. And consequently, it's the same message that rares the same truth as today. Any person can repent of their sins and follow Jesus. And God will wipe their sins away. Nothing has changed. That's their message. Now, this day is starting to shape up like a mass conversion. But what's different about this day, as opposed to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is that there's going to be resistance. There is going to be consequences to talking about Jesus on this day. Jump over to chapter 4. Let's look at verse 1. This great miracle happened. They're preaching that day. But that's not going to set well with the people that killed Jesus. These religious leaders are going to take great issue with this. The priest, this is chapter 4, verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They just interrupted. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming this truth. Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's what they were offended by. This message was, was, was greatly offensive to them. This is a very, very big deal. Jesus is alive. You killed him. The religious leaders did it, but Jesus didn't stay dead. They're all wrong for doing this. Jesus' message trumps everything they're telling you up here in the temple. We can understand why these religious leaders were so angry. I mean, this message is in direct conflict with what they are teaching the people. Look at verse 3. Here's what happens next. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message did what? Believed. And catch this. So the number of men grew to what? About 5,000 people. So what started on the day of Pentecost with 3,000, by the time we get to chapter 4, has grown to 5,000. Probably more than that because they're just counting the men. They're not talking about their family. So this group is growing rapidly. Now this arrest of Peter and John here in chapter 4, it is the first public resistance to this new movement of Christ followers. And like I said, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. They're preaching every day on the death of Jesus and his resurrection at the hands of the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. So it's in direct opposition. And they're preaching this message every single day. It just happens that this one is accompanied by a great miracle. But they're teaching this message at the temple where all of these religious leaders spend their day. Every day these religious leaders are being blamed for the death of Jesus. And more and more people are starting to believe it. And then they're believing these signs and wonders that are accompanying this message and these religious leaders, the very same ones who arrested Jesus and put him to death, the very same guys, are now going to start a resistance against the disciples and this group of 5,000 Christians. 
So they arrest Peter, they arrest John, and this is their attempt to squash this movement before it really gets started. It will not be their last. I wonder if this same scenario were to happen today, Christians being arrested in public areas for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. How many of us in this room would be reconsidering our commitment to Jesus? I mean, that's not anything I can answer for you, and, and boy, I sure hope it's never a reality. I hope we never have to find out here. But how many of us would be second-guessing that decision we made to follow Jesus? I don't say this lightly, but I think you'd agree with it. That being a Christian today here in the United States is a piece of cake compared to what we read about in the book of Acts. It's a piece of cake. I mean, the things that we're going to read together and study and I'm going to preach about throughout the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you're going to see things, especially if you've never read it before, you're going to, it's going to blow your mind. And here in America, we're not subjected to any of that stuff. Being a Christian here in America is a piece of cake compared to thousands, if not millions of Christians in other parts of our world. Last year, Newsweek magazine released an article and with this headline. I'll show you a picture of this headline. This is just last year. Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any time in history. Now just let that sink in. Newsweek magazine. That persecution of Christians, it's worse today than ever before. We don't hear a lot about it. But there is tragic news coming through every single day of Christians who are suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. And that's why I say it's a piece of cake to be a Christian in America. It's not so much in other parts of the world. I'll share a story with you. This happened two weeks ago. This happened on April 28th. This was the Sunday after Easter. And there is a, there's an organization called Open Door Ministries, and they're dedicated, they're one of many organizations that are dedicated to sharing the news and documenting Christian persecution around the world. And just the other day, they shared this story about a pastor um, from Burkina Faso, which is a small country in Western Africa. And I'm just going to read you this article and just give you a taste of resistance and persecution around the world. I wish this was isolated, but it's becoming common. Last Sunday seemed like any Sunday for 80-year-old Pastor Pierre Owit, who spent 40 years serving his church in Sangreji Village community in the northeastern Psalm province of Burkina Faso. On April 28th, he gathered for worship with his congregation in the West African country. And like every Sunday, he preached the word of God with the wisdom that seasoned years of life and ministry bring. But shortly after the service, an ordinary Sunday suddenly turned deadly and a church building where worshipers had just gathered became a crime scene. At about 1 p.m., while Pastor Pierre was still talking with several congregants in the churchyard, a dozen men on motorbikes stormed the area. A local leader who wished to remain anonymous told World Watch Monitor that the assailants attacked the Christians, or excuse me, asked the Christians to convert to Islam, but the pastor 
and the others refused to do so. Reportedly, the attackers gathered Pastor Pierre and the other five members of his church that day under a tree, confiscated their Bibles and cell phones. Then they called each of them, one after the other, to a tree nearby and shot them dead. In addition to Pastor Pierre, the attackers killed his son, his brother-in-law, as well as two other people from the church, and one of them survived and is in the hospital. The men set the church building on fire, and two motorbikes as well on fire that belonged to the church. And before they left, they stole a sheep and a bag of rice from Pastor Pierre's home. That should be shocking. Convert to Islam or die. That's why I say being a Christian in America is a piece of cake. Yes, we have our troubles. Persecution comes in different forms, usually not violence. It's there, but it's not like this. If that were us today, how strong would your commitment to Christ be? See, many Christians today are still suffering resistance and persecution that began in Acts chapter 3 and 4. So what we're seeing throughout the world is, is, is starting right here. I want to show you the birthplace of Christian persecution. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. This is not going to be the first time. Oh, no, 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 no. It's going to get much, much, much worse. In the app, I went ahead and posted the link to this article. There's a lot more to the article. I'm just sharing with you a little bit. So if you've got the app and you want to look up this website, I provided the link for you. And you can do that at your own time. If you look down at verse 5, here's what happens next of chapter 4. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so Caiaphas, these are names you might remember from John's gospel. John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, began to question them. By what power, what name did you do this? Specifically, the miracle. This guy that was crippled, and now he's healed. We can't deny it. How did you do it? Whose name did you do it by? Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of all the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Don't you love the courage? These are the same people that killed Jesus. He's looking them in the eye, the same people, Jesus' accusers. And he goes, it was Jesus who did it. And then he said, you know, whom you crucified? Oh, he's laying it on thick. But God raised him from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the corner stone. How did Peter know that? His mind was open to Scripture because Jesus opened his mind. Peter's response, again, very offensive to them. Probably under different circumstances, Peter would have been the next one to be crucified after Jesus for talking that way to these religious leaders, accusing them of killing the Messiah. Accusing the men right in front of their face. I love Peter's courage. You did it. They were, they were very mad at Peter and John, but they couldn't really do anything about it why? Because the man who was healed is right there. Look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, 
they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do about these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak any longer to anyone in that name. Isn't that funny? We're going to tell them not to do that again. That's what they're saying. Three quick observations. These notes are in your app if you're taking notes today. There's three things that they observed about Peter and John. The first one is they noticed a courage. I've already pointed it out several times. These religious leaders, they also saw their courage. See, this is something that I believe accompanies the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is courage when we need it in certain situations. They had this incredible courage. Second thing they noticed is that these men were unschooled, ordinary men. Do you understand what they're saying? These aren't religious scholars that we're dealing with. These are ordinary guys. Peter and John are what? They're fishermen. They're blue-collar guys. They're hard-working guys. And they're saying, what we're saying is there's nothing special about them. They're, they're not trained in, in theology. or They're just ordinary guys. That's, that's a very interesting observation. All they could notice is that these guys hung out with Jesus. Boy, isn't that a great, rec- isn't that a great acknowledgement? Oh, there's something about you. You're just a normal dude, but you know what? You hang out with Jesus, those Jesus people. That's what they noticed. Third thing they noticed was this. The man was healed. And that is undeniable. These guys healed him, and we cannot refute it. It's undeniable proof. Look at verse 18. This is what they did as a result. They called them in again, Peter and John, commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John replied, and I love this, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I tell you, may we all have that kind of attitude and courage. Hey, judge for yourself what's right or wrong, but we're not going to stop. After further threats, verse 21, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And I, I think about stuff like this. How tempting would it have been for Peter and John to leave Jesus out of the equation? Not even to bring it up. I mean, how easy would it have been for them to do that? But he says right here in verse, it is by the name of Jesus that, that we do this. I think Peter could have said this. It, it is by the name of Peter and John, the great fishermen of the sea, that this man stands before you healed. And aren't we tempted to take credit for things that we don't do sometimes? I think the temptation might have been there. But they're not going to do it. They didn't do that because they knew deep down in their heart who gave them the power to do these things and what empowered them to do it. It was the power of the Holy Spirit through the name of Jesus Christ, and they wanted them to know. There is one blaring truth that jumps out at me when I read chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I want to share it with you. It's this. Great things in the church don't happen because of us. They happen because of Jesus Christ. They happen because of Jesus, not because of us. Peter said this in chapter 4, verse 11. 
The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. What's he talking about? He's like, you rejected Jesus. And in turn, he has become the most valuable of us all. That's what he's telling them. You know, here at New Life, we've had some real victories here as a church over many, many years. And many of those victories are very obvious. But I'm also talking to the thousands of victories that most of us in our congregation will never even know about. Relationships that have been healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. That has happened time and time again right here in this church. Health being restored. Our children turning their hearts to Jesus. Sometimes after many years of praying for them. Many of us can point to prayers that have been answered. Spiritual growth taking place among so many people here. And the relationship with Jesus is just continuing to thrive. Victories like addictions being overcome in the name of Jesus Christ with the help of the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptisms, the many baptisms we've witnessed together, the growth of our church, changed lives on the mission field through organizations we support and stories that will never know these people personally. None of this happens. None of it happens because of our great wisdom and foreknowledge and abilities. None of it happens because of that. They happen because of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2 is the same Holy Spirit that still empowers Christians today. I see in the first church up to this point a very humble group of Christians who knew exactly who their leader was, Jesus. And they knew exactly by what power great things happened. And that was by the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you today... Do you know exactly who your leader is and by what power great things happen in your life and in this church? I hope you know it's Jesus and no one other than Jesus. But after Peter and John were released, I want to show you what the church did after that. Jump down to verse 23. I'm going to go quickly here. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They went back to their people. They went back to an environment of, of harmony and unity and fellowship and communion and devotion to God's word and prayer. That is the group of people they went back to. They went back to a wonderful environment of this koinonia. This group that was devoted to each other, they went back to their people and they celebrated what God was doing. Oh, I think, we're not going to talk about it here today, but there is something to be said about celebration. I hope that every Sunday has a, has a part of it, a celebration of what God is doing. What greater reason to come back to our people than to celebrate what God is doing. We do that through worship and fellowship and communion and common devotion to the same things. Every worship service, every gathering should be a form of celebration. Sometimes it takes llamas. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Just saying. I, I don't know. No, the llamas are separate. Okay? But there should be joy. And I think there was real joy when they went back to the group of Christians. And then if you jump down to verse 24, the second part of verse 24, we're going to end with this. They prayed, Sovereign Lord you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you hear the humility here? You did this. This is the church praying. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Again, acknowledgement who's really in control. But I tell you, when we pray, when it says, thy will be done, it's an acknowledgement of who's in control. When we pray and we say, God, you're the king, you do these things, it's by your power. There's an acknowledgement here, and I, I see this in their prayer. Then they say in verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Do you hear what they didn't pray for? Lord, take the threat away. They didn't pray for that. No, they said, Lord, consider their threats and give us courage and boldness to stand up to it. There's a lesson here, friends. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then, verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Friends, God still shakes from time to time. He still moves us. He still empowers us. And we need to have courage and boldness to speak the truth. And friends, no, we are not being hauled off into prisons today for our faith. But I'll tell you what they are trying to do. They are trying to silence Christians at every turn. This is the time for the church to not be bashful in our witness for Jesus Christ. So Lord, maybe our prayer today is not that we stop all these politicians and stop all these groups from doing. Maybe, Lord, just consider their threats, but give us boldness and courage to speak the truth of Jesus Christ.